The universe has good news for the lost, lonely, and heartsick. Sugar is here, the both of us, speaking straight into your ears. I'm Cheryl Strayed. I'm Steve Almond. This is Dear Sugar Radio. Oh, dear son, won't you please share some little sweet days with me? Hello, Cheryl. So we are back. Today, we're going to be talking about money, 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 which I'm so interested to hear your insights about. And we have a couple of fascinating letters and a wonderful guest. But I think about money a lot. Money is just makes people crazy. And in their personal lives, their relationship with money is so twisted and pathological. And that's certainly true in my life. I'm going to drop a little Freud on you. I'm just going to do it. It, I come by as it naturally like as I am wont to do. It is impossible, Sigmund says, to escape the impression that people commonly use false standards of measurement, that they seek power, success, and wealth for themselves and admire them in others, and that they underestimate what is of true value in life. Hmm. So now I am going to read a letter from somebody who I think is struggling with these very confusions about wealth and what it means to be rich. Dear Sugar, my family is rich. We were comfortably upper middle class when I was growing up, and now my father is one of the most influential people in my small home country. My mother is also a successful lawyer. Neither of them comes from much financial privilege, and I am proud of them. They gave me things they never had, music lessons, art classes, summer programs, elite high school and college educations in America. I'm a young theater director and writer living in New York. Right now I live in my parents' fancy empty condo in Manhattan, which they insist they bought for themselves because they want to spend more time near me and my brother when they retire. But I suspect they really bought it for me, knowing I had chosen a life in the arts, a.k.a. no money. I have a paid internship and odd jobs, but since my parents are generous about supporting me, I'm able to save up towards financial independence and have nice things like dinners out, manicures, and theater tickets. I also have time to work on my projects and take unpaid gigs when some of my friends have to work 40 hours a week just to make rent. I'm grateful for it, but I also feel guilty. I also hate living by myself in my parents' condo. It gets lonely, and I feel so different from the other people who live in my building. I wish I was sharing a less luxurious place with roommates, picking out thrift furniture and paying my own rent. I hate bringing people over to my place, whether it's a new guy I'm dating or my best friends from college, whether their reaction is, oh my God, this is where you live, or oh, I see. I fear they're calling me a rich asshole in their heads. I do work hard, and I think I'm good, but I struggle with the feeling that I didn't earn any of this that maybe how good I am is just a result of the art classes, summer programs, the great teachers that were all paid for. It's not that I haven't experienced pain and trauma, but I could also afford therapy to help me heal. I judge other young people who come from wealth who don't fight it, but are they really the more honest ones? I don't have to work either. I choose to because it's better for my spirit. How do I earn it? Or how do I feel like I earned it? 
How do I give back to the world given what I've been given? Or at least, how do I not be an asshole? That's almost a constant question in my life, Cheryl, as you know. (laughs) It's signed, sincerely afraid of being a rich asshole. Fantastic. The very fact that, that Am I a Rich Asshole has written us a letter with these concerns tells me that she's, you know, thinking really deeply about how not to be an asshole, how, essentially how not to use her privilege in a way that is harmful to herself and others, which I think once you start asking that question, you're partway there. And, and I think, you know, as she knows, a lot of people who are in her shoes, they don't even know that they're privileged. They don't even acknowledge that, in fact, they have received a lot of things that they didn't earn. They have gotten lucky in ways that other people did not. Right. Actually, what's really most important, and I feel terrible calling you rich asshole. We're going to say rich. All right, rich. Because I feel the same way. We don't think you're an asshole, rich right. asshole. So rich. The important thing that your parents gave you, the central thing that they gave you, is a work ethic. That's the great gift that they gave you. They came from humble means and they worked very hard to make something of their lives. That's hopefully the central lesson that you took from them. The other thing that's really important for you to bear in mind is true poverty is not an aesthetic choice. It's not buying thrift store furniture. True poverty, as you know, Cheryl, is deprivation. It is a lack of opportunity, of choice, of social mobility, uh, of time. Spend less time, Rich, please, trying to ape a starving artist and more time trying to be an artist. If you want to honor your gifts and your opportunity, then do the work. There is no other way. And opportunity is not the same. She's, you know, you're saying, I, I think I'm good, but maybe how good I am is just a result of art classes and so forth. All those things you have are just the opportunity. And you're right. You're very fortunate to have those opportunities. But they're just the opportunity to sit in the room and do the work. That's the beautiful thing about the arts specifically, but I think even life in general, is that you you really do have to make your own way in the world. And absolutely, Rich, you had so many advantages and you continue to have advantages that help nurture and support you along the way. I agree, Steve, with what you're saying, that, you you know, it really... um, is so important now that you kind of you know shed this kind of uh, shame that you have, this embarrassment you have about your parents' uh, financial situation, and and do the work. I feel like you're kind of standing in your own way, and I think this is going to be a key piece for you, Rich. Is you know instead of sitting around lamenting how much you have, how about figuring out how much you can give? Yeah, you can be writing truth. I think that one of the most difficult things to write about is money, class, some of these problems that you're writing in your letter to us, Rich, mm-hmm. some of these these uh, sort of conundrums. Write into that space. Use this as fodder for your art. I think something that we see very commonly is this myth, this archetype of the starving artist, this idea that adversity is the mother of invention and uh, the romanticization. The romanticization? The romantificai. The romanticization. <laughs> The making of romance around being a starving artist. And so we hear the stories about, you know, Faulkner worked as a postal clerk and, you know, Edward Abbey was a park ranger and Cormac McCarthy was a bum when he was writing. And it's uh, a kind of, um, it's a dangerous myth because the truth is every writer takes a patron. Every artist has to take a patron. Emily Dickinson 
had a patron. Her, you know, her family had the capacity for her to sit and write her beautiful poems in her garret. You have to, to the extent that you can, detach financial expectation or status from artistic creation. Those are two entirely separate worlds. There are plenty of people in the history, of, especially of writing and art, who had came from good circumstances. Jane Austen, maybe my favorite writer in the world, she wrote her beautiful novels, which were observations about the aristocracy or the landed gentry in England, and she could do that, as could Lord Byron, Shelley, and all the rest of these people, because they came from a position where they had the leisure yeah. to undertake the luxury of making art. Yeah, we don't have to look too far back in history to find those writers. I mean, obviously, the the example of Jane Austen you gave is perfect, but we have many contemporaries who did grow up with privilege. And in fact, we're going to call one of them right now, Sean Wilsey, the author of... Oh, The Glory of It All. Yes. Fabulous memoir. Yeah, fabulous memoir. He is going to talk to us about this letter. Hello. Oh, hi, Sean. Hey, Sean. This is Cheryl. How are you? I'm fine, Peg. How are you? It's nice to talk to you. How is it that we've never met? Uh, I don't know. Perhaps because I live in a small town in Texas. Do you you actually live in Marfa, Texas? You know what? I actually split my time between Marfa and Brooklyn, but I do have a Texas driver's license and I do wear cowboy boots. Uh, but I never wear a cowboy hat out of state. That just seems like going too far. Yes, it, it, it would be, especially, oh, my God, in Brooklyn. How insufferable would you be if you walked around Brooklyn in a cowboy hat? <laughs> you know, I'm like a big believer in, like, you should let people wear and do what they want as long as it's not hurting anyone else. But I would feel like a total dick walking around with a cowboy hat in Brooklyn. See, I've adopted, like, the local thing where my boots are always, like, shined and I haven't started ironing my jeans yet, but I could imagine getting there. And like my cowboy hat, I always get it like steamed and cleaned and stuff. Wow. I'm getting like George Strait flashbacks. It's totally like, yeah. But I'm like, I just don't want to look like I'm like trying to be all cool. Yeah, we don't, we wouldn't want you to look like that. <laughs> so, so, Sean, we, uh, we, we, your, yeah. your, your beautiful fashion sense aside, we, we have called you, we've enlisted you to talk about this letter with this young woman who is really struggling with coming from privilege. What did you make of this letter, given your own history? And first, I want to say, forgive us that we thought of you when we read the letter, Am I a Rich Asshole? This doesn't imply that we think that Oh my you God, are. well, yeah. <laughs> believe me, it made me think of myself and... Whatever. I grew up in a wealthy family. Like I was just witness to so much horrifying, entitled behavior. And I think it's like kind of a noble thing to interrogate yourself about that if you're coming from that sort of background. I did feel total sympathy. I thought it was a well-written letter, and I thought that like sort of boded well for the future of that person because she's able to kind of organize her thoughts and articulate things, which is already like... You know, if she spent all her time sitting in, like, ritzy restaurants, just, like, getting drunk in the morning with her (laughs) friends before shopping and doing manicures, she wouldn't have had time to polish her prose. So I was like, all right, good. That's that's a nice thing. But she seems isolated. She seems lonely. Right. She also seems guilty. Very. Like, you're not inherently responsible for whatever, like the sins of the world 
just because you've been handed some kind of advantage. I'm curious about your experience when, you know, you were becoming a writer and before you could support yourself through your writing. Did you feel that same kind of guilt that, that I mean, did your parents support you during those years? Yeah, I mean, I, you know, I've always worked. And that, I think, just was like kind of a given for me. But certainly like my dad paid for school and for a while he paid for rent, which was like a huge leg up. And I felt guilty about that stuff and was always very much like this girl, like full of, I think, overly guilty thoughts Hmm. about any kind of like handout that might come my way um, until I actually started to publish stuff. Once I started publishing stuff, that all kind of went away because I felt like a legitimate person in my own, on my own merits. Right. And I think that's the thing that's really plaguing this girl. And I feel like she should cut herself a break. Mm -hmm. Um, Nobody says you have to suffer in order to, or at least suffer financially in order to be legitimate as an artist. Right. Right. I think you have to have experiences that deepen your awareness of the world and your place in it in order to write anything that's like kind of worth something. Yeah, right. but, but Sean, as your you know, career attests, part of what is so amazing about oh, the glory of it all is that you are documenting a very real and perverse world that happens to be extraordinarily extravagant and moneyed, and that too is a part of the human experience. Yeah. Do you have advice, Sean, for these questions, these kind of deeper, more universal questions that uh, our letter writer is asking at the end, she's, we call her rich because we don't want to call her rich asshole. How do I earn it or how do I feel like I earned it? How do I give back to the world given what I've been given or at least how do I not be an asshole? Yeah. I mean, it's kind of a matter of scale. I, I, it's, it's difficult to know how advantaged she is and how isolated she is as a result of it. I mean, I think if she's literally living on like, you know, Madison and 74th, that's like dude, get out of there. Like, (laughs) go find some roommates. Um, I I just think like money can really take you away from the world and that's not good for anybody. It's not good for your soul. I think she talks a little bit about her soul and her spirit. And I I thought that was really, it was really clear to me that she's just like waiting for somebody to be like, you know what? Like, turn your back on some of this. Like, go out and like, you'll be a better person for it if you make your own way. A little bit more, which isn't to say that you have to like, you know, drag yourself naked down the street, right? <laughs> you know, in penance for everything. And right. that would be, I mean, to to pretend to be poor would be worse than being a rich asshole. Yeah, frankly. I mean, that's the whole. That's exactly that's the whole other form of bullshit. But you yeah. know, but one of the ideas I had is like, okay, well, you know, just because your parents have a lot of money that they're willing to share with you doesn't mean that you always need to take it. You know, part of what. Rich is doing is sort of saying, I feel bad about this, and but yet she continues to justify doing it. Nobody's saying that she has to take her parents' money. Nobody's saying she has to stay in that fancy condo. You know, what about going and, and getting an apartment with roommates so that you, uh, you know, pay your own expenses? Damn right. You know, what about that? <laughs> I mean, and it's not saying that you can't then, when you're in a pickle, you know, call them up and, and, and ask them to bail you out and know that you have a lot of privilege because not everyone, you know, 
know, does have that parent behind them with the credit card or the bank account. But, you know, there's something to be said for just having the experience of paying your own rent. What she's really saying that she admires about her parents isn't that they're rich. It's that they worked hard. That's right. She should realize, well, that might be telling you something. What you admire in your parents, what you aspire to is to, you know, pull yourself up by your own bootstraps or whatever it is. For her, I think the work, as you're suggesting, Sean, that's such an important thing for her to hear. The moment that you started seeing that your work had merit, because I think art really is, to a great extent, a meritocracy. The stuff that's important, history sniffs out the phonies. The stuff that's really good gets published for the most part. I, I totally agree. And I feel like the, the asshole thing is a red herring. She's not an asshole. She's just afraid of what people think of her. Right. There's, although there is a little box on the tax form. You have to check it that says asshole. <laughs> <laughs> but she also, like, I feel like the one thing about that letter that really, like, bummed me out is how just intensely judgmental she was of herself. Mm-hmm. And I feel like the solution might just be, like, a tiny adjustment of just being like less judgmental and more curious about like other people and other choices without just like attacking yourself for what you have. Yeah, I'm so glad you said that, Sean, because she's got an opportunity to ask her parents what their experience was and how they lifted themselves from the circumstances into which they were born to the parents that she knows who were obviously ambitious and passed through a lot of different terrain on Earth Mm -hmm. in order to get where they were. I think sometimes the, the impulse we need to try to check is to say, hey, Rich, it's not all about you. Pay attention to the world, and that includes the experience of your parents. If you th- if you right. admire them, then that means you have a certain kind of obligation, whether they're rich, poor, wherever they ended up. What's beautiful about uh, your first book, your memoir, is that you were paying really careful attention to your folks and all the stuff that was happening. You were there, and that's the artist's job, is to be there and pay attention. Totally, man. I feel like she's somebody who needs heroes and role models, and, and like she's clearly going a different path than her parents, and she respects them. But, like, the person that just, like, came into my mind as you were saying what you just said about the meritocracy of art is Wallace Shawn, who is a great playwright and actor, but came from immense privilege. Yeah. And now writes from, I mean, some of his writing is savage against privilege. Um. And yet he never really like denies or disavows where he came from. And I think it like enriches his perspective. Um, I don't know if she's a Wallace Shawn fan, but I'd recommend reading a little Wallace Shawn. Right. Oh, he's so great. And I mean, art, good art comes from all places. Right. One question I have, Sean, for you is she, she talks about um, the way that, you know, living in her parents' condo and having this financial privilege sort of separates her from her peers. They, yeah. She right. brings them over and they say, oh, I see. And one question I have for you is, did you ever experience this? I, you know, I grew up poor and I was sometimes, frankly, if we went to college together, I might have been sort of jealous of you. Um, <laughs> I, I had to, it was something I had to actually really work on. I had to right. struggle. My wealthy friends who I loved and cared about, you know, I, I did have a kind of internal struggle because I did envy them and I had to sort of get over it. And I'm curious, were you ever on the other end of that? Um, Did you have friends who were jealous of, you know, the resources you had? Yeah. I mean, at at one point I'm actually working on a memoir now that there's like a big section of it set in New York. 
And when I first moved to New York, I had a couple of roommates, ended up living with those guys for my first year. Then I moved to Jersey with another roommate. And I lived in this crazy situation where we had really low rent because our landlord, who was a retired New York City cop, um, owned this building and he would come and party in our apartment and watch sports <laughs> like once a week. Awesome. And we had to just leave while he was there. And, and so I was, and I, I weirdly it. ended up like, I wasn't really like that, that much of a like go out type. Like I was always sitting at home and like writing. And so it was actually really good for me. I ended up leaving the house and making all these friends that I probably never would have made because I had to be out of the house every Tuesday. And I would get back and find like weird, like gristle from the steaks they were grilling like on the floor. But <laughs> after that, I ended up getting a job at the New Yorker right around that same time. And I was like, totally obsessed with the idea of buying my own apartment. And my father was like, Sean, New York real estate is a terrible investment. This is like 1993. Um, and I was like, no, dad, I, I really think New York's real estate, I think the city is headed in a good direction. We would have all these debates about it. And he ended up helping me buy. And this is, I mean, this is a little bit of a like, I'm, I, I'd like to unpack this way more, but for the purposes of this conversation, he effectively helped me buy this place that I then mortgaged and used to buy the place next door. And so I had this like big apartment. And back then it was just like a couple of hundred thousand dollars and it was a massive loft wow. in what's now known as Nolita on Mott Street. And I moved off the boat and into this place and it was a total freaking disaster. Like it wasn't, it was commercial space. It, it had like a sink and that was like it. And my, I got this roommate and the roommate and I like worked on the place and, and it was fun. But he, that was the moment that sort of answered your question where like I owned the place and he was desperately like jealous and it was, it was a total inequity. Right. And I was really unusual because I was at that point 24 and I owned my own apartment mm -hmm. in New York City in New yeah. York City but of course I, I couldn't have done that without some help and ultimately like he went he was like working at Rizzoli the bookstore I was working at the New Yorker and he ended up getting fired at Rizzoli couldn't pay his rent and <laughs> and I was like dude if you can't pay your rent you're gonna have to to work for me, like doing shit around the house until yeah. you can pay your rent again. Oh, dear. Yeah, clean up the gristle from the floor, Pally. It's comp <laughs> it complicates a friendship. And, and let me just say that that was, he basically turned it into sort of like my valet. It was like Jeeves and Worcester oh or something. Oh, my God. Um, and, <laughs> so, so, and it was like, I mean, it was actually kind of funny and fair, and we were we were old friends. And for a while, it was it worked out, and he ended up getting another job and stuff. But like, there was an inherent like imbalance, yes, there yeah. that ended up totally coming back and biting us in the ass, and we had like a huge falling out. And I loaned him some money, and he never paid me back, right. and it got really ugly. Yeah. Right. And and so so just to to kind of boil it down, Cheryl, I think what Sean is saying is that Rich needs to buy an apartment and get a valet. 
I, I yeah. I, that's, that's kind of the abstract summary. <laughs> then you're then you're definitely not an asshole if you follow that route. Right, but be, right. like be nice to your valet. This is why we called you, Sean. We knew you'd come up with that that really deeply wise counsel. Yeah, and now I, now I'm gonna have to feel really guilty that I told that story. <laughs> oh my god, I <laughs> no, love it's a it. great story. No, it's it's really all so fascinating, and I just. I want to thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us. And I and I think what's interesting is all three of us, we're all kind of saying the same thing to Rich, which is you're okay, you have money, do something right. good with it. And maybe step away from some of those resources that you're tapping into because they're not serving you. They're distancing you from your peers. They're making you feel bad about yourself. And, you know, step out a little bit and find some independence. Yeah, you're not here to suffer about this. You're, yeah, I mean, in my, in my Dear Sugar column, in one of the columns, I said, you know, what you have to do is be kind and you have to pay your own electricity bill. Those are kind of like the two things. <laughs> All right. There it and is. And honestly, I mean. I, I'm like, God, I wish somebody had told me that. No, I mean, I really think, honestly, doesn't it boil down to that? If you're kind and you pay your own electricity bill, you're doing what we're here to do. Yeah. I think that's in the Bible. Yeah. All right. Yeah. I think you can lay your head down on the pillow at night and just sleep a dreamless, guilt-free sleep. Wow. <laughs> Sounds beautiful. Sean, thank you so much for your wise counsel. Oh my God, it was a pleasure. Bye, y'all. The world's clean energy future relies on ancient elements still in the ground. Without mining, there will not be a clean energy transition. But pulling them out of the ground comes at an environmental and human cost. Mining is intrusive, but the results are the building blocks for products that we use every single day. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty. Join me on point for Elements of Energy, Mining for a Green Future, five special episodes. Listen and follow On Point wherever you get your podcasts. Last Scene, a new podcast from WBUR and the Boston Globe, investigates the largest unsolved art heist in history. So about the time that he begins putting the duct tape on, he says, this is a robbery. The theft of half a billion dollars worth of art from the Isabella Stewart Gardner Museum in Boston. When the FBI says, we solved it, we know who did it, it's like, no, you don't, because you don't have the paintings. Subscribe and listen to Last Scene Now on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Sponsored by Samuel Adams and ADT Smart Home. I was really uh, interested in something that Rich said because it was actually a hang-up of my own in reverse for years. She talks about how her parents gave her the opportunity to... Um, you know, take classes and camps and, you know, go to these great colleges and so forth. And I didn't have that opportunity growing up. I never went to one class or one camp or, you know, I paid my own way through college. I did feel in my 20s resentful Mm -hmm. of my peers who came from from backgrounds where they had financial support from their parents. I did. Mm -hmm. And one of the the reasons, I mean, I would say the prime reason I felt resentful is I thought that it had a negative impact on me as a writer. I thought, well, what if I had had the opportunity to go to that summer camp that was a writing workshop? Or what if I had that special education? Which is, in a weird way, the opposite. Turn it around. And what Rich is saying is, well, what if I had the opportunity to struggle and to no deprivation? I mean, everybody's doing the same thing. And what I learned is, you know, that 
what I would have had if I'd had those things. It's just a different life. Right. You know, I, I would have had a different set of things that contributed not only to who I am, but what kind of writer I am. You know, I felt held back by those things and I was mistaken. You know, I really think that we cannot say writing comes from struggle, uh, financial struggle, or writing comes from financial security. You say everyone has a patron and every artist has a patron. And my first thought was that I disagree with you because I thought, well, no, wait a minute. I didn't have a patron. And then as you were talking, I thought, you know who my patron was, uh, was Syracuse University. Right. I applied to graduate school because I needed a patron. I needed to find a place that would shelter me and give me financial support for an extended period of time so that I could write my first book. And that's exactly what I did. I did my research. I found graduate programs that fully fund their students. And that was Syracuse University. And I really think, I mean, honestly, I really wonder what would have happened. Like, how would I have written that book, that first book, Torch, if I didn't have the support of Syracuse University? Mm-hmm. So they, in some form, were my patron. That doesn't mean I didn't work my ass off. I did. Right. But that's the thing about Rich. You know, she does have a patron in her parents. She still has to do the work. She's never going to get where she wants to go without doing that work. And I think the important thing to remember, Rich, is that it's not about the the life that you lead. It's the quality of attention that you pay to it. It doesn't matter whether you're in the penthouse or in the hovel. What makes good art is people who are paying very careful attention to the human stuff that's happening around them. Mm-hmm. Could be Jane Austen. Could be Bukowski hanging out in the bars. It just doesn't matter. It's the quality of attention that's paid to the life, not the quality of the life. Right. You're a rich girl and you're gone too far because you know it don't matter anyway. Say money, money won't get you too far, get you too far. Okay. Do it. Here's another letter uh, about a different kind of uh, trouble with money. Yes. Dear Sugar, I'm a failure. My inner monologue goes something like this. You are a fuck up, a loser. Why? My immediate failure is my terrible, horrible, no good relationship with money. I have an absolute blind spot when it comes to money. Basically, I always feel like I deserve more than what I have, or my kids do. So I spend money on stupid shit we don't really need. Intellectually, I know what I have to do, but whenever faced with a choice of no or yes, I pick yes. Yes, I need the latte. Yes, I don't feel like cooking, so let's go out, kids. I'll deal with the repercussions later. I regularly overdraft my bank account, have taken out extremely high-interest loans, am filing for bankruptcy, live in a place I hate, drive a very old car, spend a ton on private education and activities for my kids, yet my gas has been shut off twice. It's ridiculous. My marriage failing had a lot to do with my money issues. Things my ex accused me of at the time I didn't believe. I'm not a binge shopper. I'm definitely not a hoarder. I have a graduate degree and probably make enough to support myself, but I'm failing in every way. My ex predicted I would fail, end up living in my car or worse, and it has gotten so close to that, I'm scared, and I'm so ashamed he was right. I'm stressed all the time. My actions, or lack thereof, have sucked all joy from my life. I'm afraid to date anyone because I'm so unstable. Who would want to deal with my shit? How could I be honest with anyone about these issues I have? I've let my kids down. What kind of role model am I? How can they be proud of me? How can I face everything I have to and not hide from it? Every day I think, be brave, just do it. 
but every day I avoid what is difficult and I retreat. So how do I begin? Yours truly, financially failing. Financially failing. You're dealing with an addiction and it represents some complicated underlying pathology. And it's important for you to to notice, you do in your letter, I think your letter is the first step. You are ready to say, I have a problem. You're clearly saying you have a problem, and here are the symptoms. I've lost a marriage. I'm filing for bankruptcy. I'm making these disastrous decisions. You're going to have to do some searching to figure out what's behind this short-term instant gratification. Mm -hmm. The next purchase is a solution because there are millions and millions and millions of Americans in this ecosystem of spending your way to happiness who are digging themselves into this hole of not just destitution, but emotional and psychological poverty. Right. Financially failing feels like a failure. And, you know, there's so much self-loathing uh, in this letter. And I think that, too, you know, that's uh, a classic uh, sort of addiction cycle where you keep doing this thing that you do that makes you feel like hell for doing it. And you don't stop and you cannot stop. You, you, you keep getting that same negative consequence over and over. Uh, you see it as a negative consequence. Everyone around you sees it. You've admitted it to yourself and you feel powerless to do anything about it. You talked about this the cycle of people drinking, or in this case, spending, because money is her drug, okay? Yeah. Buying is her drug. And, you know, we drink. Why do you drink? I drink to forget, right? Mm-hmm. For, to forget what? The fact that I drink, you know, I think that's in The Little Prince, if I'm not mistaken. But mm-hmm. it's that, that we could say the same thing about why she buys. She buys because she feels that she deserves more. Mm-hmm. There's some, And that really speaks to deprivation. She mm-hmm. feels that she, and especially her kids, deserve more. Well, where did that come from? Those are psychological and emotional questions. She's identified the problem. She's identified the symptom of the problem. The question is, what's underlying that? Where is this feeling of deprivation? And that's something that we really actually can't answer. We can just say it's quite obvious that her drug of choice is money and spending. And actually, Cheryl, I think we all do that to some extent, just Mm -hmm. like we all have a drink when we're feeling stressed out or a puff on a joint or whatever it is. There's moderation. But there are certain people, as we know, who cannot moderate in certain realms. And for her, she cannot. When she gets that credit card, the first thing she thinks is all of the unhappiness is going to be filled, or at least she's going to be able to forget about it by making that next purchase. She's going to, for a moment, feel that she's giving herself what she deserves, but what the world has withheld from her. Mm -hmm. And that's, I think, what she has to confront. And look what it's done to her. Mm -hmm. I mean, the beautiful thing is that, that you're asking, financially failing, how could I be honest with anyone about these issues, but you have been honest. You've Mm -hmm. been honest with us. Mm -hmm. You have told us things that I understand exactly why you feel terrible. Your life is in a real tough state, and you're clearly capable, uh, an incredibly capable person, but you are using this drug of choice to blow up your life bit by bit. Right. And I want to reiterate that 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 shame, that that question, how can I possibly be honest, um, is the thing that's probably holding you back financially failing from financially succeeding, from feeling like you can actually take control of this problem. And, you know, I just want to say to you, everyone who's ever struggled with any kind of addiction, shame is a big part of that cycle. It's a big part of what keeps you down. And, and you know, that you are not alone. There are so many people out there, listeners um, out there who are nodding their heads right now and saying, you know, I have this problem too. 
I hide it. I try to pretend it doesn't exist. I deny it, but it's my problem too. So there, you know, always, you know, one of my mantras when it comes to saving yourself is find your tribe. Find the other people who are like you, to whom you don't have to explain yourself, who will who will understand you and, and help you down the path. So where can we send financially failing? I mean, I think no question. Uh, Debtors Anonymous, for sure. Debtors Anonymous. Right. I think also uh, another piece of this is that deeper examination that, that sort of extends beyond and above and below and all around um, that that addiction yeah. um, to some of those root causes. I think Debtors Anonymous probably will do some of that. But maybe, uh, you know, think about this. If you saved your all those pennies you'd save by not buying the stuff that you don't need, maybe buying yourself a little therapy that you do need. Correct. And, you know, it is... Like an eating disorder, the the way to to sort of heal yourself from that kind of addiction is not never eating again. Right. It's you have to relearn your relationship with food. So financially failing, you have to relearn your relationship uh, with money, with buying things. Right. Um, to learn how to make sound decisions about this, and the the great thing is, is you can. But you can't do it from a place of shame and despair. You can't do it from a place of sitting there. You know, there, there is, I think, this inherent um, core of self-pity in this letter, which I have a lot of compassion for financially feeling. I don't mean that in a, in a sort of finger-wagging way. Because I think that when we're in that sort of deepest well of self-pity, that's where we finally look up and say, I can't live like this anymore. Right. And I think that's what your letter is saying, financially failing, you're saying, I can't live like this anymore. I see that I am fundamentally broken in some way. And the manifestation of that is this fantasy that the next purchase is going to, for a moment, remove that self-loathing and that self-judgment. But it just digs the hole deeper. And, you know, it's true, she, you can never avoid buying things and so forth. But it's also true that in the throes of an addiction, when you're trying to really handle it and address it, you've hit bottom and now you're trying to climb your way out you really have to make a plan. Mm-hmm. You need a treatment plan. And some of that, I think, we feel always is finding your tribe, is getting therapy. And some of that is also literally putting limits on your proximity. Like we mm-hmm. would say to somebody who's recovering from an alcohol addiction. Don't go to a bar. Don't go to a bar. Don't yeah. put yourself in proximity to it. It's just too self-punishing. Mm-hmm. What's so funny here is that the fantasy, I'll have all this money and my life will be better, I'll finally get what I deserve, is actually the, th- the tool of her punishment. Mm-hmm. It's the thing by which she's really hurting herself and mm-hmm. causing herself to feel deeper despair and shame. And I think it's actually kind of beautiful and amazing that she is able to come clean with us in this way. And now she needs to say, all right, now I can see it. I've been heard. And now i got to make a plan. You can do it. You can do it financially. You can do it. So that brings us to the end of another episode. Yes. We've gone a lot of places in this episode, I feel like. Yeah. A lot of thinking about... You know, the way in which, in a certain way, money is a giant distraction from the serious business of life. To return to that idea that Freud expressed, right? Whatever we think about him, we're judging the wrong things when we worry excessively about the money, right? Rich asshole, you know, this young woman is worrying a lot about the money. She should be worrying about the work and the world that she needs to pay attention to to make that work, right? Mm -hmm. And this poor woman who's shopping herself into poverty is focused on the next spend on money, but money's just the symptom. 
in a way, I think what what the American system does, maybe the human system, is distracts us with money. It's not the root of all evil, but it's the root of a tremendous amount of distraction from the more serious business that we're supposed to be doing, whether it's making art or parenting or just getting through the day. Well, I need dollar, dollar, dollar is what I need. Dear Sugar Radio is produced by WBUR in Boston. We are produced and edited by Lisa Tobin. Who's not perhaps rich in fact, but rich in heart. And she's rich in fashion. That's really what matters the most. (laughs) Engineering and production help by Jim Brunberg. Yes. Coming to you from Portland, Oregon. Uh, Please write us your letters. We'd love to hear from you. We read everything you send to us. Your problems, your sorrows, your secrets, your feedback to the show. Yes. Our email address is dearsugarradio at gmail.com. And you can listen and or subscribe on iTunes or go to the WBR.org website. And we very much hope we'll be in your ear again next week. Or that you have, might have two ears. That's and right. We would like to be in both of them. That's right. At the same time. Oh, my God. It's getting hot. <laughs>